welcome to episode 115 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 1st of March 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Got a bit of variety for you this time. We'll be doing a bit of your feedback later, but first, let's talk about fun with Raspberry Pis. Will, you have acquired a Raspberry Pi 400, and you've been playing with Risk OS on it. Let's start with the Pi 400. It's not exactly news at this point, but what do you think of it? Well, I was in two minds. I wanted a Pi to play with, and I wanted to stick it under my monitor, plug it into the back of it, and not have to faff about finding a keyboard or swapping cables over and all of that sort of thing. And it occurred to me that the 400 was exactly what I wanted. And it was Friday night, and I'd been watching YouTube videos, and I wanted it the next day because I'm impatient. And they're easy to get hold of. Amazon have got them on um, like next day delivery for what is, well, quite a lot of money. I think they're about 130 quid or something, but it comes with the right power supply, and it came with a mouse. Um, and uh, that was it. You know, I just run one HDMI cable into the back of my monitor, and I was ready to go. So as a form factor, I didn't think I would like it quite as much as I do, but it's just so handy for playing with, for sticking a different distro on or sticking a completely different OS on and just playing with it. And then if it, you know, if I get bored of it, then I throw it away and put a reformat the SD card and, and now it's something else. But I don't have to go hunting through all my box of cables and my box of bits to find all the things that I need to plug in and, and make it work. So yeah, as a form factor, I really, really like it. And what do you think of the keyboard then? Passable? No, not really. The keyboard's shitty. Um, but yeah, you can, you, you have to make these uh, concessions. So are you already planning to pull it out and then do something else with it? No, it, it, it will do, although it has got a USB port. So if I was going to do any serious work on it, then I could always plug a separate keyboard in. But on the topic of serious work, I stuck uh, Raspberry Pi OS on it, first of all, just to have a play with it, and used it for, for maybe an hour or so doing some web browsing and, and you know SSHing and all that kind of thing. And it did feel like a real computer. There are some points around the edges that it started to feel a little bit slow. But on the whole, it performed like a, a sort of average desktop PC did. You wouldn't know that it was this this tiny little keyboard that was doing all of the hard work. And, you know, you got VS Code running, presumably. and <laughs> <laughs> It was pre-installed. I didn't even have to do anything. <laughs> so... You've been playing with Risk OS on this. So it used to be on the download page on the Raspberry Pi website, there'd be, you know, other operating systems and, you know, there'd be Ubuntu and, you know, various other stuff there. And Risk OS, now it's disappeared. So you have to actually uh, do a search for it. I found it pretty easily. But this harkens back to days of yore, like when I was a kid. I remember trying something that, what was it Risk OS on the Archimedes? Mm. Yeah, I remember that in about 1990. The teacher showing us this three-button mouse with uh, the middle button being menu and all this stuff. So this is real retro stuff here. Well, it is, but also it isn't. And this is the confusing ground that it finds itself in. But yeah, you're right. It, it does date from, from, well, from the late 80s, really. Acorn had got this new processor they designed, an ARM process, you might have heard of it, and they wanted an operating system to go with it. And they originally, they'd farmed out the production of the operating system to a third party. And the Acorn soft guys, the, the sort of internal software house, were looking for something to do. So they wrote one as well, and it turned out that their one was a lot better. So that became the precursor to RiskOS. 
and then it sort of uh, moved forward from there. I think the last official Acorn release was like version three in probably, I don't know, 94 or something like that. And then there's a bit of a gray area about who was the the owner and who was the developer of it. And I think there there seem to be sort of two or three different branches going on. But anyway, in the end, it's all come down to Riscos Open, which is like a proper open source operating system. And you can download the source and you can contribute. But more importantly, they've got an SD card image on their website, which you can download, stick in the back of the 400 and boot it up. And you get the desktop operating system. You get some applications, like some really quite good applications on there, artworks as was, DTP packages, um, Sibelius, the uh, music authoring package. There's a version of that for it. And yes, you can do real work on it. But this is where it all gets a little bit confusing between is it a retro OS or is it a modern day OS? If it were a true retro OS, then you would have that sort of hardcore of community users who were just interested in, in playing with it. And you do have that, but equally, it's still, I don't know, it feels like it's pitching itself as a a sort of viable alternative, which I think is a bit of a mistake because it ain't. Their browser is, is basic. They have a browser. You can get on the internet with this thing, which is pretty impressive, but... You know, it doesn't really do JavaScript very well. It's not very uh, up-to-date, but there's probably only about half a dozen people in the world who are actually working on this thing. But it was nice to play with it. It does have some really nice design decisions in there that I I think really are very, very good and and should be considered by other operating systems and other desktop environments. But, you know, as as a play thing, it was quite good fun. But what I really wanted to get into was playing all of those games from the early 90s that I remember playing at school. And that's where I found I was a little bit disappointed. Somewhat unsurprisingly, a lot of that old software doesn't work. And I ended up having to run an Archimedes emulator on Riscos (laughs) on a Raspberry Pi in order to play uh, those old games. It turns out that in the early days of of Riscos and and ARM, the applications are actually 26-bit applications (laughs) and not 32-bit after all. And so there's this new, uh, yeah, the new processors which will only run 32 or 64-bit software and, and they just can't work. There's a couple of apps out there, ADFF. FS is uh, the primary one, which will allow you to boot a disk image from the good old days, and it will have some sort of emulators built in, and it runs quite a lot of games really, really well, and you would never know that there was anything in between. It's like completely invisible. And then other apps you download, they just refuse to run. And that was a bit a bit sad, really, because I couldn't just you know delve into all that old shit. But that said, it's got a package manager. It's got a whole load of like, freely licensed games that were really good back in the day. Gods, for example. You can buy Gods Remastered on Steam for about five or six quid. It's completely free, like legit free on, on RiscOS. Uh, all the Lemmings games are on there. Um, oh, all, loads of stuff. So if you want to play some retro games, I would recommend giving it a go on a Raspberry Pi 400 so you have that sort of uh, all-in-one feeling to it. And uh, yeah, geek out for, for an afternoon. It's good fun i tried this out on my raspberry pi 4 because they've got images for various raspberry Pis. i think even down to the zero and it was very fast there's not one package manager on there there seem to be two one of them is like a store where you can actually actively buy stuff and you have to register for account i didn't do that but um there seems to be paid for software there which is interesting and there's a lot of stuff in the package manager which has like unix dependencies and therefore won't work 
which was a bit frustrating. And I tried to install some stuff, but then I couldn't work out how to open it. I didn't read the documentation very thoroughly, to be fair, but um, I'd sort of drag stuff around. And it says in the readme file when you download it that this is not Linux or Unix. This is a totally different experience. And that it is. It's it's like some weird like parallel dimension or something where Linux never came about and this is what we have instead. Yeah, I know what you mean. There was certainly times where I just had to stop and think, like, what the hell am I supposed to be doing now? Uh, Right-clicking is like a major thing in RiscOS, and uh, the middle button is the menu button. And remembering those sort of paradigms compared to what we're used to was was quite tricky. But then there are other things that it does really well. Like an application, well, not only is it minute, like a few hundred K for a full-on word processor, the directory that it lives in is a sort of self-contained, relocatable, all-in-one package. You can just pick it up and move it around on your filing system, and it will just continue to work, which is really, you know, a great idea and something that um, that the modern Flatpak and Snap packages kind of move towards replicating, if you like. But, yeah, it, there is definitely a learning curve, and I, I think if you hadn't used it back in the day, it would be very difficult to start using it as a daily driver. Yeah, I think even if you had used it, it would mm. be difficult because the browser, you say JavaScript doesn't work very well. As far as I can see, JavaScript doesn't fucking work. I think it's disabled by default. I did find a menu option to switch it on and then very quickly turned it back off again. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, because I downloaded our MP3 and tried to play that and there was nothing that would play it. I tried to install mPlayer and I don't know what happened with that. I don't know where it went. Mm. So I was unable to get any sound apart from the beeps and bloops that it gives you so i didn't spend enough time with it is the bottom line but it is very fast it is definitely faster than linux there's no doubt in my mind i mean it's not a surprise really given that it was made specifically for that type of processor yeah and you're talking about applications which complain that you haven't got enough memory if you can't give it 500k yeah uh, of free ram so yeah yeah it's from a, a different era altogether and there's no system D, I take it. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. It's only a matter of time. And then the last thing I want to talk about is their community. They are active and they have been around for a long time. I found a website that was the uh, the Riscos Awards. And uh, the last time they did anything was 2019. And they ran a survey, a bit like the Steam survey, asking about like what people are using their machines for, what hardware they're running it on. And a couple of things stuck out to me here. And that, that is the, the vast majority of people are running it on a Raspberry Pi, which makes sense. But it means that most users of Riscos probably aren't using it on the original hardware, which is fine because I don't even know that the new versions would run on the old hardware. People have adopted a Pi as their Riscos hardware of choice, which makes a lot of sense. And then the vast majority of people had been in the Acorn ecosystem since the beginning, which says to me that they're not really attracting new people. And indeed, why would people move to that when it is quite difficult to use? The final thing was that more than 60% of their users were over 50 years old and more than 85% were over 40 years old. And coupled that with some clicking around that I was doing, trying to find software, trying to find some sort of hints and tips about how to use it, what some of the config options did. And I was just coming across broken link after broken link. And that was a little bit heartbreaking. It feels like 
it is the beginning of the end. There are a few like hooky websites out there that have still got disk images from software that I used at school. And I, yeah, you think that one of those websites goes offline and that's probably it. That software will be lost forever. Now, copyright issues aside, it does like raise the question about what do you do about software uh, preservation? Is this a, a, an ecosystem that should be kept alive? Should people be actively downloading this software and making it available against copyright law? I appreciate, but I don't think that if things continue the way they are, this is a community that is going to be around for much longer. And that's a bit sad. So uh, having got all excited about playing Pandora's Box on Friday night to here we are on Monday, and I'm starting to think it's a good job I did it now because in a couple more months, it might not be there anymore. I'm glad I checked it out then by the sounds of things because it might not be around that much longer. So people should give it a go while you still can. It's a piece of history sort of and kind of now. It's certainly interesting to see a completely different way of doing desktop computing. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved our website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up, and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, get your $100 credit, and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Let's talk about Linux Mint then. A couple of weeks ago, Clem put up a blog post, and it's uh, called Update Your Computer, and the TLDR is security updates are very important. Stats tell us they're not being applied by all users. Apply updates right now. Don't run end-of-life version of Linux Mint. What's that phrase about the the chickens coming home to roost? (laughs) The fishermen not being able to send their fish to the continent. (laughs) (laughs) You just randomly picked that out of the air, did you? (laughs) (laughs) So what do we think about this? They have used some means to establish that a lot of their users are running massively out-of-date systems that are not being updated and some of them are on versions that are end of life to a couple of years ago so there's no chance that they could possibly even get these security updates and they're worried about it rightfully so but they have always been a bit not sketchy on updates but like they've never enabled updates by default or anything automatic updates and you know unattended upgrades and stuff like that they've they've always been a bit sort of like oh you're in control of your computer and this is the fucking result of that. Most people are idiots and need to have the computer updated for them. As long as you can turn it off, then I don't see the problem. Like Canonical made that decision with regular Ubuntu like three, four, five years ago. Was Linux Mint one of its selling points, the fact that they were almost saying, don't upgrade if you don't want to, and there was no way to upgrade from one version to the other? Yeah, they they say, or at least it was the case, I don't know if it still is, but yeah, it always was, nuke and pave was the only way. Who wants to do that? 
Well, I think another aspect of this is that Mint was seen, certainly in certain circles, Mint was seen as the distro that you would stick on your parents' computer who wanted to use Windows, but you, know, you thought you knew better, so you would stick a Linux on there, and <laughs> Mint was the choice, uh, which is a great idea, but those sorts of users, those class of users, are not going to be interested in updates. If a thing pops up on their screen that says you need to do something, they're just going to cancel it and, and ignore it. Uh, so I think that there's some of that being uh, sort of caught up in the problem here is that significant amount of their user base are people who don't really know or care what a security update is. Yeah, which is why when I set Linux up for my mum, I installed unattended upgrades, made sure it was all running so she would at least get the security updates. But they followed up in their monthly news post and talking about the update manager, they said, in some cases, the update manager will be able to remind you to apply updates. In a few of them, it might even insist. So it's all a bit vague, but it, it seems like they do have plans to try and address this. But I mean, fucking hell, just install unattended upgrades by default. It's not that hard. And anyone who cares about it can remove it. It's not like the Pi thing we talked about a few weeks ago, where it was like forced on people and some you know external repository this is something that is in the ubuntu repositories is open source is fucking useful and trivial to remove if you care about it just do that and jobs are good and surely popey posted a blog post recently about a situation in ubuntu where a an update was needed in order to enable auto updates but that update couldn't go out because it was broken in the auto updater <laughs> um, and so what ended up oh happening was uh, the, <laughs> the the fix went into uh, into Ubuntu proper, and then in order to force that update out to people so that they could then update in future, it was moved over to the security pocket. And unless you've tinkered with your config, then all of the security updates are installed automatically because they're important. Um, and so that was able to push an update out to Ubuntu users who perhaps wouldn't have otherwise got it. And certainly if they were victims of this bug, they would never have got that update and re-enable it. And it's that kind of uh, attention to detail and um, hats off to Popey here because he was the person who suspected there was an issue and really chased that issue home until it finally got fixed. Uh, without people doing that sort of thing, without the option of a security update, which is being forced onto people, then you could find yourself in a similar situation. And I suspect that Mint have found themselves in a similar situation. And without wanting to put too fine a point on it, the guys at Ubuntu know what they're doing. They have lived through this. They have solved all these problems. And there's a reason that they've solved all these problems. It's that, And it's that they care about the security updates. Yeah, and there's a reason why it's built into Snap by default, that every six hours it checks for updates and automatically doesn't. And for the faults that Snap has, that's definitely not one of them as far as I'm concerned. I'm the kind of person who the first thing I do is run my update script every time I turn my computer on because I want to be up to date on absolutely everything. And I use an LTS, so I know I'm not going to get horrendous feature updates that just fucking break everything. I'm just going to get bug fixes and security fixes. So I'm all in favor of just update all the things as long as they are stable. And that's what Mint is. It's based on the LTS. There's no reason why they shouldn't do that by default. Yes, make it opt out by all means. And it maybe have a switch or something to make it easier than a command line opt out. But just put automatic updates on by default for fuck's sake. Okay, 
This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments. Quickly analyze the performance of your Linux servers in real time with customizable dashboards and troubleshoot Linux issues in seconds with a unified view of your metrics, traces, and logs all in one place. With integrations for over 400 technologies, you can even use Datadog to monitor key Linux source metrics alongside data from the rest of your stack to get full visibility into the health and performance of your entire infrastructure. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash late night Linux. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who's supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really is appreciated. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed, so check it out. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. A reminder that the next community Mumble get-together will be on Thursday, the 11th of March at 10 p.m. UK time. Details at latenightlinux.com slash mumble. Let's do some feedback then. And first of all, Pigeon got in touch on Twitter and said, thanks for the mentions. Also, we do have support for most of the protocols you mentioned on this week's episode. We're not quite to the point where it's as featureful as using the official client, but they do get the job done. And then they link to a list of plugins, which does support an awful lot of stuff like Discord and all sorts of stuff. So I had no idea that Pigeon was still relevant, but apparently it is. So that's good to know. Just for the record, it does WhatsApp and Telegram. So, I mean, Telegram's not surprising, but WhatsApp's pretty cool. So I'm going to definitely check this out. So on a similar topic, Suave said, I just give friends and colleagues and family a limited user account on my Linux box and I tell them to SSH in and write to me on there to chat with me. Nothing beats a V-split text screen. (laughs) I suspect that might not be uh, very serious. Like server, like username. Oh, yeah. You can still use finger then, though. That's good. (laughs) Kyle writes to us, why do so many distros ship GNOME by default? And this is a question that I don't have an answer to, so hopefully you guys do. From my perspective, when I first installed a Linux desktop on Debian, uh, I I don't know, a long, long time ago, there were two choices, KDE or GNOME. And GNOME was the one that was a little bit more, well, I mean, actually rounded, like the buttons were round instead of square. It felt a little bit softer, a little bit safer, a little bit more comfortable. And KDE was kind of jarring and they had too many settings and you had to know what you were doing in order to use it. And GNOME kind of eased you in. And I think that a lot of the reason that distros are still shipping GNOME today is because of those very early impressions that happened, you know, 15 odd years ago. I'd always assumed it's because um, distributions wanted to under deliver on the desktop so that when people <laughs> discover Plasma, they... High five, Graham. <laughs> massively surprised. <laughs> is it just that KDE and Plasma are too configurable and there's too much to break and therefore too much to support? I think that's nonsense. I think it was that Red Hat picked it at first because maybe at the very, very beginning, there was a bit of question mm. to the license of uh, Trolltex QT at the back of the time. And 
those were dispelled i don't know relatively quickly afterwards i can't remember the timeline well enough but i think it just set in then as the default in inverted commas for it being the open desktop and i'm not sure if that's true or not yeah i think you're right at the time of the qpl and the beginning of the um, gtk project you're right it became kind of the default libre option even after Qt and KD became completely open source. Yeah. Will, it was on your watch that Canonical went back to GNOME. And my understanding is that that was somewhat a top-down decision, shall we say. Do you have any idea why that was decided? Because you could have gone for anything when you ditched Unity. Unity as a desktop shell still relied very, very heavily on all of the GTK toolkit, all of the applications were the GNOME default, so Rhythmbox and what have you. And the team were skilled in GTK and GNOME desktop technologies. So the natural choice was to go back to GNOME because that's what the team had experience of. Right. Okay. Because I think that's another big factor, isn't it? Because Ubuntu is by far the most popular desktop distro. And so whatever Ubuntu uses is going to therefore be the most popular. I think that was true a while ago. I don't think the other distros are swayed by what Ubuntu does anymore. Um, a case in point being Wayland, for example. Ubuntu have had very valid reasons not to ship Wayland by default, but it hasn't stopped other distros shipping it by default for a while. And I think the same is true of the desktop environment. Just because Ubuntu ships GNOME hasn't stopped other distros from the uh, the freedom to ship whatever they want. But we're still in a situation where Ubuntu and Fedora being arguably the biggest two distros and Pop! OS being probably one of the bigger Ubuntu derivatives shipped with GNOME, although Mint is supposedly pretty popular and they don't. So maybe not. Because Manjaro, I think, as an XFCE distro, they've got all the desktops under the sun as spins. But for me, the default is XFCE. Maybe that's just because that's what I go for every time. But... Uh, and Plasma is becoming popular there as well. So I don't know. Is the question valid at all? Like, do most distros ship with GNOME? It feels that way, but maybe not. If you look at the pure numbers, then yes. Like, as you say, Fedora and, and Ubuntu ship with GNOME. So, like, I don't know what that makes up. 90% of the Linux desktop market is probably GNOME. Yeah, probably. Okay. This episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code LATENIGHTLINUX to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link an upgrade with 50% off with the code late night Linux. That's automation.link and the code late night Linux. So Peter, I think that's how you say it, uh, got in touch regarding episode 113. I don't quite see the aversion to signal. It's better than WhatsApp and can be used as the default SMS app, even if others don't use it. Well, I did try out signal and I just, like, I don't know, it was all right, but I uninstalled it because it annoyed me. I can't remember what it was, but, yeah, I just tried it out briefly, and it just didn't offer anything that the other messaging services don't offer already. So maybe I'll install it again at some point. 
He continues, one quick thought regarding episode 112. Just drop canine mail. Seriously consider switching to fair email. It's available on F-Droid and GitHub. If you have to, it's also on the Play Store. The focus is usability, privacy, and security. The GitHub APK is updated very frequently. It's my favorite app by far. I've tried nearly every email app on F-Droid and the Play Store, free and paid, and this is the only one that ticks every box for me. Please check it out and also consider paying for the pro features. I have no association with the dev, just love the app. And then he linked us to a bunch of stuff there. So, Phelim, are you going to check this out or are you going to be a stubborn bastard and keep using K9? I'm going to be a stubborn bastard. I have five or six mail accounts signed into it. I just can't be arsed redoing them all. Um, I mean, it looks interesting. Uh, it, I don't know if it does multiple accounts. I'm, I'm assuming it can, but I didn't. In all the example screenshots, it only has the one. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll be forced to at some point. But uh, yeah, the inertia is really massive. Being what with the laziness and all. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, Yusuf says the slow shutdown on Zubuntu may be due to SnapD. Sometimes it takes over a minute to close. And this actually came up again, I think yesterday or the day before, I was trying to shut my laptop down and it was taking a minute. So Graham, have a fucking word with them, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I'll mention it tomorrow. (laughs) Okay, good. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll be talking about what's been going on in the news. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. (laughs) 